This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When diplomacy fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Crimean War, which originally aired as one episode on the 25th of August, 2012. Hello and you're most welcome to When Diplomacy Fails' remastered episode 12, The Crimean War, part 1. In continuing with the post-Napoleonic episodes, this one right here holds a special significance. It was, after all, one of the first signs of the future in European power politics, because the ancient enemies of Britain and France joined forces to take on the might of Russia. Although that sounds, granted, like the sequel to a superhero movie, the reality is that the Crimean War saw Britain and France cooperate internationally on a scale never before thought possible. But I'm getting ahead of myself already. The Crimean War is, of course, famous for a lot of things, including Florence Nightingale, though apparently she wasn't that great after all, and the Charge of the Light Brigade. But as usual, I hope I'll be able to give you guys a different perspective that is unique to when diplomacy fails and Zach Twomley, well, just, as, just like I tried to do five years ago. A few small things to mention. I don't know why this is still in this remastered script, because if you've been listening to any when diplomacy fails at all, then you will know this already, and it's kind of common knowledge either way, but... Apparently it's here, so I'm going to just go through it anyway. I will refer to the Ottoman Empire as Turkey, the Turkish Empire, the Ottomans, and sometimes Constantinople, but they're all 
the same thing. And if you didn't know that, well, there you go. But on the other hand, there's no real rhyme or reason to me referring to them as different entities. I kind of just do it wherever the mood takes me, mostly for effect, but that's just the way I am. I feel like it makes the narrative more interesting rather than just being like, the Ottomans, the Ottomans, the Ottomans. Bit of variety in one's modern diet, as they say. Anyway, you guys know by now that this is a rather large project. It's been going for a good while. It's about halfway through-ish, but maybe not quite. It's kind of hard to figure it out now. This is February when it's being recorded, so that kind of just gives you an indication of how much preparation went into this. And as I like to do in Breaking the Fourth Wall, I'd like to ask you guys again to visit WDFpodcast.com. Just in your spare time, you're on the bus, just coming home from work or whatever, or maybe the bus service isn't as wonderful, in quotation marks, as Ireland's is. So maybe you drive, don't use your phone in that case, because that's illegal, at least it is in Ireland. Maybe you're just sitting at home, you're walking around, you're going on a walk. Maybe you're walking the dog or ironing. Hey, you have a few spare minutes going to WDFpodcast.com and seeing what's there, seeing how you guys can help out. Have you ever wondered whether you indeed could get a t-shirt? Well, you can. Failing that, you could become a patron of When Diplomacy Fails, which includes rewards that involve having a t-shirt and, in fact, having all upcoming books signed by yours truly. What more could you want? Nothing, that's what. So, WDFpodcast.com, and that's how you keep things like these going. So thanks very much for your support, guys. All of it is, of course, massively appreciated, and though I bother you with these things, I hope you'll agree that I'm allowed, because, (laughs) as you can tell, these things take time. Anyway, you're the best, and because you are the best, it's time to begin. I will now take you to the year 18... 15. If men could only learn from history, what lessons it might teach us. Samuel Taylor Coleridge The 1815 Congress of Vienna, which signalled the end of the Napoleonic Wars, was meant to usher in a new age of peace, prosperity and cooperation in Europe. The recognised five powers after the settlement... Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, and Russia all agreed to maintain the status quo and prevent revolution of the kind seen in France from ever occurring again. Such a commitment was of a special interest in Russia, where perhaps the most autocratic regime of all existed in a state of constantly enforced order. Serfdom was still in full swing, though it shared so many similarities to slavery, which had been abolished, granted, at Vienna. The Russian Tsars were painfully aware of how fragile their rule was and how much Russian prosperity relied on the continued military domination of Russia over Eastern Europe. Despite the European commitment to contain the French Revolution's ideas after 1815, ideas of personal freedom and democracy continued to creep into Western Europe so that by the middle of the 19th century, Russia's autocracy placed it almost at odds with Britain and France. France had seen the resumption of the monarchy for a time, while successive governments attempted to give the people what they wanted and failed to varying degrees. The brothers of the late, beheaded Louis XVI ruled as Louis XVIII and Charles X up to 1830, when a Republic of France was proclaimed. For the next decade, the French struggled to administer their state in the shadow of Napoleon's influence. 
In circumstances like these, romanticism and fond memories of past French glory were fertile grounds for a key figure to reassert his birthright. In 1848, with revolutions of varying levels of intensity sweeping across the rest of Europe, a nephew of their great leader rose to prominence. Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte III, often just called Napoleon III, acquired power in France, and by the early 1850s was busy building a stiff foreign policy that would propel his country back onto the world stage. He had recreated France in his uncle's image, that of an enlightened despotic regime bent on re-establishing France as the world power, also the power in Europe. But Napoleon III had come too late to the party to really challenge the new status quo. France was no longer Britain's chief rival since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. In almost every theatre of competition, it seemed, the French spot had been taken by Tsar Nicholas I's Russian Empire. Everyone, I would imagine, is familiar with the post-World War II standoff between America and the USSR, the Cold War. What you may not have realised until now is the striking similarities between that Cold War and this situation in early and indeed the rest of 19th century Europe. Here at When Diplomacy Fails, we have examined the many ways which Britain and Russia competed on the world stage, a competition which only truly ended as the onset of the First World War. Until then, Britain and Russia, for the goods of a century, were wary of each other's growing power. Britain went on to solidify its authority over the Australian continent, Africa and India, while Russia launched itself into the project of expanding east, west, north, south and central. Of all these directions, it was the south, well if you want to be technical, the southwest, that most concerned Britain. British statesmen imagined the Russian bear tearing across Europe and arriving one day in the Mediterranean, ready to challenge British influence there. The route that Russia was expected to take was through the Balkans and the Black Sea and then into Constantinople and beyond. But these lands were already occupied by a power, though this power was long past its prime. This was a power which Russia hoped to exploit and which Britain hoped to pop up. It was, of course, the Ottoman Empire. The Russo-Turkish War of 1828-29 was a result of this policy. Russia under Tsar Nicholas I saw the Ottoman Empire as the ideal place for expansion. The Russian dream of control over the Black Sea and perhaps the Dardanelles would give it a secure footing on the world stage. However, the war ended without Russian control over Constantinople, and the Ottomans were granted a stay of execution, as far as Russia was concerned, due to their permission to allow the Turkish Empire to exist. Adam Lambert, in his book, The Crimean War, British Grand Strategy Against Russia, 1853-56, writes of the outcome of the war. The Russo-Turkish War ended with a Russian army at Adrianople. The treaty signed there on the 14th of September, 1829, was a model of restraint. Russia gained Georgia and Circassia, the Danube principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia were given a degree of autonomy under the Sultan. Russian commerce through the Straits was guaranteed, along with control over the mouths of the Danube. Russian policy was to maintain Turkey, for the moment at least. The Imperial Conference of 1829 had accepted that a weak Turkey was the best guardian of the Straits. Her downfall would surely cause a war amongst the major powers. Yet, if Turkey collapsed, Russia would not revive her, and would not allow another power, even a resurgent Greece, to control the Straits, 
If any such danger occurred, the navy would carry an army to secure the Russian interests of the Straits. The mention of Greece is an interesting one. For many years, the Greeks had chafed under Ottoman rule, and as the empire became more and more unstable, they were encouraged to revolt, often by Moscow. Russian czars were the self-appointed defenders of Orthodox Christians throughout Europe, don't forget, and this view contributed to the barely veiled hostility which Russo-Turkish relations so often enjoyed, in addition to the strategic concerns. The Turkish Sultan was understandably uneasy about the implications of the Russian claims, since many Orthodox Christians lived not just in Greece, but all across its empire. The Russo-Turkish War broke out in 1828, once Tsar Nicholas switched from covert aid to full-blown military intervention on behalf of the Greek Revolt. Or at least the Tsar claimed that's why the war occurred. It didn't take a genius to work out what Russia was doing, though. You see, if Russia could use the Orthodox Christians as a means of justification for whatever wars it would wage against Turkey in the future, and, and the Turks fully expected there would be another one, then the support for Turkey would hopefully be small enough to enable a Russian free hand in that theatre. But Europe wasn't fooled by the Russian strategy. Although Nicholas claimed only to have the protection of Orthodox Christians as his major concern, he was not the only power with interests in that field. Napoleon III was attempting at the same time to assert his own claims to hegemony over Christians in the Holy Land. Napoleon at first hit a wall and was denied the rights over the Christians which he desired. Turkey's foreign policy was far more concerned with what Russia was doing, since as its neighbour Russia posed the greatest threat, and so Napoleon's demand to be recognised as the legitimate protector of Christians in the Ottoman Empire's holy sites were denied. But Napoleon tried again, this time with a show of force, sending the steamship Charlemagne into the Black Sea, ramping up his aggressive diplomatic efforts and dangling the promise of money, oh money, in front of the Sultan. This time, for those reasons, it was a success, and the Sultan recognised French claims to Christians in his territory, much to the eternal chagrin of Russia and the bewilderment of Britain. In the subsequent attempts to clear things up, Tsar Nicholas sent his foreign minister, Count Karl Nesselrode, to talk with the British ambassador to Russia, Sir George Hamilton Seymour. Tsar Nicholas's aims at this stage were to both regain the previous rights over the Orthodox Christians, which he had at least partly enjoyed, and to prevent France and Britain from forming any kind of alliance a prospect which the Tsar viewed as an ever more dangerous possibility when the 1850s began to progress. While the Tsar was trying to sway British opinion over to his side, he was sending a further mission to the Ottomans. Prince Menshikov was sent by the Tsar to the Ottoman port, or government, in Istanbul to negotiate an interesting little diplomatic deal. Nicholas's goal was to negotiate a formal convention with the same powers as an international treaty, under which terms the Ottomans would allow Russia the same rights of intervention in the affairs of Orthodox Christian Ottoman subjects as France had gained with respect to the Catholic Christian subjects. This would enable Russia to control the Orthodox hierarchy in the Ottoman Empire and would also place it firmly at odds with French moves. Menshikov arrived in Constantinople on the steam-powered Gromovnik on the 16th of February 1853, and from the start the Russians offended their Ottoman hosts. They lambasted the Turks for allowing France such privileges, even though these privileges were largely the result of gunboat diplomacy as we've seen, 
and Menshikov also overstepped his rule by demanding the reinstatement of certain Orthodox Christian officials who had previously been removed. While this was going down, the British ambassador in Istanbul, Hugh Rose, was commenting to London about large movements of Russian soldiers into Moldavia and Wallachia, those provinces that had been established as a sort of buffer following the 1828-29 conflict. He instructed the Admiralty to send some warships towards the Dardanelles and hamper Russian ambitions there. While such moves would undoubtedly have increased the tensions, Rose was unable to convince the Admiralty to commit to any manoeuvres in or near the Black Sea, and Whitley Dundas, the British Admiral in charge of said fleet, was less than pleased that a diplomat was telling him what to do, so he stayed where he was. This was imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It was all happening while the Turks were considering that offer made by the Tsar, but that decision would soon be drastically influenced by Rose's replacement, Lord Stratford, who immediately spelled out the implications of the treaty to the Sultan and advised him strongly to reject it because of its imperial demands on Ottoman sovereignty. This, of course, caused the situation to escalate. Nicholas was outraged when he learned of the failure of Menshikov's diplomacy and, blinded by his determination to appear on this podcast brought his grievances to their logical conclusion, war. At first it seemed like Tsar Nicholas was just stirring the pot though. He sent his forces to occupy Moldavia and Wallachia on the 2nd of July 1853, but the Tsar had been granted rights over the Christians living there, so the expectation that the so the expectation was that the planned annexation of these regions into the Russian Empire proper wouldn't draw much protest, but in this Nicholas was wrong. The Tsar had used the perceived failure of the Sultan to protect Orthodox Christians in the Holy Land as a pretext for his invasion of these two provinces, which were Ottoman provinces, technically, in modern-day Romania, and they also straddled the Black Sea. Though it is unlikely that the existence of any pretext at all really mattered to Europe at this stage, since it was now Europe, not just Britain or France, that was watching Russian moves. Britain had sent a fleet to the Dardanelles to join up with the French one already stationed there, 
and Britain then sent a delegation to Vienna, where the other major powers of France, Austria and Prussia were meeting to discuss what to do next. Upon arrival at Vienna, it became clear that the Austrian position, vis-à-vis Russia, would be somewhat difficult to make out. Austria was a former ally of Russia, and at the very least friendly to Russian policy, in the years following the Congress of Vienna. It should also be added that Vienna owed St. Petersburg a great debt, as during the 1848 revolutions, in Hungary, Russian military support had been essential in keeping the Austrian Empire together. In return for this, Tsar Nicholas believed, well, perhaps not unreasonably, that because Austria now owed his country something, in the event of war with Turkey, the Austrians would side with Russia, or at the very least remain a friendly neutral. But Nicholas was wrong. Despite what Russia and Austria had done together in the past, Austria was becoming swayed by the arguments of Britain and France regarding the need for maintenance of the Ottoman Empire, and at the same time, the Austrians began to feel intimidated by the massive movements of Russian troops near their own borders. The great fear in Western Europe was found in the implications of the Ottoman Empire suddenly ceasing to exist and degenerating into a state of turmoil. The power vacuum in the East would surely result in a long war for influence, so it was largely believed that keeping the Ottoman Empire propped up was the best move. This idea, that maintaining the Ottoman Empire was better than letting chaos reign and predatory empires like Russia close in, was the nucleus of the Eastern question, arguably Britain's most important foreign policy device with respect to Russia and arguably in the 19th century itself once Napoleon had been defeated. It had grown as a principle of British foreign policy in the years after the Greek War of Independence, where a British fleet, sympathetic with the plight of the Greeks, allied momentarily with the Russians and thus played a large role in handing the Russians such important victories in the region. British theorists later decried the British policy line in the late 1820s as causing a major imbalance of power in the region and creating a monster in Russia in the process. As late as the eve of the First World War, such arguments would be playing themselves out in Parliament, where ministers, suspicious of Russian intentions, would criticise the idea of siding with the Russians. As the last time this had been done in the 1820s, the balance of power had been destroyed. To prevent the disaster from growing, it was believed that through the Eastern Question, Britain could justify its policy to the people and forestall any aggressive Russian moves in the region at Turkey's expense, even upon pain of war. But Britain was also doing this for commercial reasons, since a centralised government in the Middle East would be far more profitable for trading than a disunited and fractured group of warring states. Hugh Rose wrote a letter to the British Prime Minister at the time, Lord Aberdeen, outlining the importance of Turkey and where Britain's interests lay. Noting, The safety of our vast commercial interests is of far more interest to Her Majesty's government than ideas of European policy or peace. To maintain the more profitable status quo, it may be necessary to support Constantinople against Russian imperial plans. All ambitions by Russia to exploit Turkey's weak position must therefore be resisted at all costs. It was easy for France to harbour similar ambitions to that of Britain, though trade was less of an impetus for maintaining Turkey than it was in Britain. France was more concerned with Russia's power becoming too great to contain, especially if it spread into Turkey itself, controlled the Dardanelles and found a monopoly of power for itself in the Mediterranean. The French were also trying to exert their own influence over the east, particularly in the Holy Land, 
and Russian resentment was particularly present when conflict between orthodoxy and Catholicism arose. Another factor was the generation that still remembered Napoleon's failed expedition into Russia and how Russia had cost Napoleon the war. Those that had fought for France during that time, incredibly enough, still harboured enough of a grudge to be attracted to the idea of a war with Russia. Such historical considerations wouldn't normally have carried much weight, but with Napoleon's nephew at the helm of France, the common Frenchman could all too easily become swept up with the patriotic notions of revenge and glory led by a close relative of the legend that had put France at the top of the food chain. Prussia's attitude towards Russia was much more complex. As recently as 1848, Russia and Britain had cooperated to ensure that Schleswig-Holstein remained in Danish hands, much to the utter chagrin of Prussian statesmen who were trying to expand their influence over the German-speaking peoples of Europe. Historian Adam Lambert, of King's College London, by the way, I forgot to mention that earlier, sets the background to this situation in the Baltic when he wrote, As the guardian of the Straits, Denmark, like Turkey, was too weak to deny them from Prussia. As a consequence, Tsar Nicholas would not allow her to be destroyed by the powerful Prussian-led Northern Confederation, or absorbed into a united Scandinavia. Britain and Russia had a considerable degree of common ground over Denmark. Both preferred to maintain Denmark against Prussia. However, in Britain, Nicholas's concern was treated as a part of his wider expansionist policy, presaging an attempt to hold the Straits. The French took a more favourable and accurate view, treating Russian designs on the Baltic and Black Sea as essentially similar. The Tsar would not permit any great power to hold the Straits, but he himself had no real desire to hold them. Russian policy was misunderstood in Britain because of the heavy-handed fashion in which it was conducted. With Prussia annoyed at the wall put up by Britain and Russia, she became more attached to Austria. This suited Austria because, after the Hungarian Revolt of 1848, Vienna had been seriously concerned, and the whole event had nearly proved catastrophic to Austrian influence in the Balkans and even her empire's integrity. It was not altogether certain that Hungary would not erupt in revolt again, and with Russia so clearly involved in Turkey, it was Prussia and her North German Confederation, which Austria saw more and more benefits in aligning with. The effect on Europe of Russia's invasion of Moldavia and Wallachia was not understood at the time by either Austria or Prussia but in Britain it was seen as the first step towards a Russian control of the Danube and then the Dardanelles. Tsar Nicholas was apparently plotting to destroy the status quo in Europe by ruining the monopoly Turkey held over the east. This was dangerous, and it was feared that it would take only a few sharp, direct hits at Turkey for that whole empire to collapse. Both France and Britain held this view, and Russia was instructed to evacuate the two states of the Danube. Surprisingly enough, Russia complied with this, and Nicholas recognised that his bluff had failed. But the need for insurance was not satisfied by Russia's compliance. The months previously had seen Russian diplomats attempt to isolate France, so that removing the claims of Napoleon III to the Catholic subjects of the Ottoman Empire could be done by force if necessary. Nicholas's goal was to reassert his control over the Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire, as we've seen, but the removal of a competitor to power in the area was also seen as desirable. Napoleon III shouldn't be seen as the victim here, though. You'll remember that he only gained authority over the Catholics in the Turkish Empire with an impressive showing of gunboat diplomacy in the first place, 
and his reasons for doing so were not based on the genuine desire to protect Catholics, but to acquire the support of the conservative Catholics back in France. But the religious conflict was just one element of what had quickly become a crisis. French and British forces had already moved to support Constantinople in early 1853, the majority being French soldiers and French ships. There was the belief present in Britain, certainly and to a lesser extent in France, that Russia simply needed to be taken down a peg. Russia would always threaten the status quo as long as their empire loomed so large in the European consciousness. With its stunning victories and critical role in the Napoleonic Wars, Russian arms and reputation had only gone from strength to strength in the years that followed. The Greek War of Independence was confirmation of her world power status, and her prestige seemed impenetrable. What was more, Russia's military presence was constantly visible, as her fleets in the Black and Baltic Seas challenged British naval superiority just by what their existence implied. British diplomats had consorted with their French counterparts almost tirelessly over the previous months in an attempt to establish some common ground between the two. This was made easier, as I have mentioned, by Napoleon III's need for glory to support his new regime. At the same time, French and British statesmen understood that war with Russia was necessary both to prop up the declining Turkey and to ensure that Europeans would not have to worry about the Russian Empire towering over them in future years. Having said that though, Britain, France and Austria still favoured diplomatic settlement in 1853. In the case of Britain and France, this was because plans for conducting the war had yet to be finalised, and in Austria's case, it was because Vienna was still in two minds about its stance that it had recently adopted towards Russia, back when it very publicly joined in the other powers, in demanding that Russia evacuate Wallachia and Moldavia. Thus all three were taken at least partly by surprise when Constantinople itself declared war on Russia on the 28th of October 1853. Though Europe had watched Turkey move troops up to its frontiers in response to Russian moves, very few really suspected a Turkish declaration of war before a Russian one. The other European powers now scrambled to mount some kind of response, or at least explain to their populations what was actually happening. How had diplomacy failed when it seemed like neither side was ready for war? Well, Turkey had in fact been underestimated by everyone. It had acted independently of any other power and was now launching preemptive strikes against its bitter enemy along the Danube. The Crimean War is famous in Britain for all the wrong reasons. It saw unprecedented levels of deaths by disease in comparison to death by war. The sense that the war had been an awful waste of manpower and money was emphasised bitterly in the post-war years, but what was often forgotten is the little things. The complete mess that the British command was in as the war began was just one element of the debacle. In an age when money could buy you high levels of command and when talent mattered little as long as you had the social standing and wealth to worm your way into such a command, it's almost unsurprising how badly the soldiers suffered, placed as they were at the mercy of men who once before had been living in the lap of luxury and had no real idea of the realities of war. Terry Brighton, in his book Hell Riders, examining both the charge of the Light Brigade and the Crimean War itself, writes about the state of the British High Command. Most cavalry officers had attended exclusive schools such as Eton, where knowledge of Greek and performance on the sports field mattered most, and anything smacking of a practical education was considered below those born to command the lower classes. There was no required military training. The Royal Military College at Sandhurst 
admitted only six students in 1854, and young men went straight into cavalry regiments as officers. Nothing was asked of them except the purchase price of the commission that they were acquiring. And Brighton continues, Those cavalry officers who were no longer so young wore whalebone corsets to hide their unsoldierly bellies and show off their exquisitely tailored and very expensive uniforms to best effect, and were often to be found in gentlemen's clubs rather than in barracks. There were exceptions, officers who combined intelligence with experience and held their ranks on merit. Sadly, officers such as these were outnumbered by those whose only qualification was wealth and social standing, and who had nothing but contempt for those Indian officers. The imagery surrounding it is almost hilarious, but it was a sad fact that Britain was placing so much and relying so heavily on officers who were in command merely because they liked to be in command. France and Britain, incidentally, declared war on Russia on the 28th of March 1854, after the terms for their ultimatum had expired. What were the terms? Well, they were especially harsh, and it was actually expected that Russia would reject them. They involved the Tsar relinquishing his claim over the Orthodox Christians in Ottoman territory. It involved allowing all nations full access to the Danube for trading purposes, and the emancipation, complete evacuation, of the Russian protectorates of Wallachia and Moldavia, in the process removing them from the Russian sphere of influence. This, of course, went a lot further than merely asking Russia to evacuate the Danube principalities, but that was the point. As I said before, Britain and France began to see war as a perfect chance to take Russia down a peg. Now, with the ultimatum rejected and the war justified, it seemed as though the time had finally come to teach the Russian grizzly bear a lesson. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 